Section 30 of Manners, Customs, and Dress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Manners, Customs, and Dress During the Middle Ages and During the Renaissance Period by Paul Lacroix. Section 30 Gypsies, Tramps, Beggars, and Cour de Miracle. First appearance of gypsies in the West. Gypsies in Paris. Manners and customs of these wandering tribes. Tricks of Captain Charles. Gypsies expelled by royal edict. Language of gypsies. The kingdom of slang. The great saucer, chief of the vagrants, his vassals, and subjects. Divisions of the slang people. Its decay and the causes thereof. Cour de Miracle, the Camp of Roin, cunning language or slang, foreign rogues, thieves, and pickpockets. In the year 1417, the inhabitants of the countries situated near the mouth of the Elba were disturbed by the arrival of strangers, whose manners and appearance were far from prepossessing. These strange travelers took a course thence toward the Teutonic Hans, starting from the Lundberg. They subsequently proceeded to Hamburg, and then, going from east to west along the Baltic, they visited the free towns of Lübeck, Wismar, Rostock, Strasslund, and Greifswald. These new visitors, known in Europe under the names of Tsingari, Sigani, Gypsies, Gitanos, Egyptians, or Bohemians, but who, in their own language, called themselves Romi, or Jean Marie, numbered about 300 men and women, besides the children, who were very numerous. They divided themselves into seven bands, all of which followed the same track. Very dirty, excessively ugly, and remarkable for their dark complexions, these people had for foreign leaders a duke and a count, as they were called, who were superbly dressed and to whom they acknowledged allegiance. Some of them rode on horseback, whilst others went on foot. The women and children traveled on beasts of burden and in wagons. If we are to believe their own story, their wandering life was caused by the return to paganism after having been previously converted to the Christian faith, and, as a punishment for their sin, they were to continue their adventurous course for a period of seven years. They showed letters of recommendation from various princes, among others from Sigimund, king of the Romans, and these letters, whether authentic or false, procured for them a welcome wherever they went. They encamped in the fields at night because the habit they indulged in of stealing everything for which they had a fancy caused them to fear being disturbed in the towns. It was not long, however, before many of them were arrested and put to death for theft, when the rest speedily decamped. In the course of the following year, we find them at Mason, in Saxony, whence they were driven out on account of the robberies and disturbances they committed, and then in Switzerland, where they passed through the countries of the Grison, the cantons of Appenzell, and Zurich, stopping at Argovy. Chroniclers who mention them at the time speak of their chief, Michel, 
as Duke of Egypt, and relate that these strangers, calling themselves Egyptians, pretended that they were driven from their country by the Sultan of Turkey, and condemned to wander for seven years in want and misery. These chroniclers add that they were very honest people who scrupulously followed all of the practices of the Christian religion, that they were poorly clad, but that they had gold and silver in abundance, that they lived well and paid for everything they had, and that at the end of seven years they went away to return home, as they said. However, whether because a considerable number remained on the road, or because they had been reinforced by others of the same tribe during the year, a troop of fifty men, accompanied by a number of hideous women and filthy children, made their appearance in the neighborhood of Augsburg. These vagabonds gave out that they were exiles from Lower Egypt, and pretended to know the art of predicting coming events. It was soon found out that they were much less versed in divination and in the occult sciences than in the arts of plundering, roguery, and cheating. The following year, a similar horde, calling themselves Saracens, appeared at Sister Rhone in Provence, and on the 18th of July, 1422, a chronicler of Bologna mentions the arrival in the town of a troop of foreigners commanded by a certain André, Duke of Egypt, and composed of at least 100 persons, including women and children. They encamped inside and outside the gates de Galera, with the exception of the duke who lodged at the inn del Rey, during the fifteen days which they spent at Bologna, a number of the people of the town went to see them, and especially to see the wife of the duke, who, it was said, knew how to foretell future events, and to tell what was to happen to people, what their fortunes would be, the number of their children, if they were good or bad, and many other things." Few men, however, left the house of the so-called Duke of Egypt without having their purse stolen, and but few women escaped without having the skirts of their dresses cut. The Egyptian women walked about the town in groups of six or seven, and while some were talking to the townspeople, telling them their fortunes or bartering in shops, one of their number would lay her hands on anything which was within reach." So many robberies were committed in this way that the magistrates of the town and the ecclesiastical authorities forbade the inhabitants from visiting the Egyptians' camp or from having any intercourse with them, under penalty of excommunication and of a fine of fifty livres. Besides this, by a strange application of the laws of retaliation, those who had been robbed by these foreigners were permitted to rob them to the extent of the value of the things stolen. In consequence of this, the Bolognians entered a stable in which several of the Egyptians' horses were kept, and took out one of the finest of them. In order to recover him, the Egyptians agreed to restore what they had taken, and the restitution was made." But perceiving that they could no longer do any good for themselves in this province, they struck their tents and started for Rome, to which city they said they were bound to go, not only in order to accomplish a pilgrimage imposed upon them by the sultan, who had expelled them from their own land, but especially to obtain their letters of absolution from the Holy Father. In 1422 the band left Italy, and we find them at Baal and in Suabia. 
Then, besides the imperial passports, of which they had up to that time alone boasted, they pretended to have in their possession bulls which they stated that they had obtained from the Pope. They also modified their original tale and stated that they were descendants of the Egyptians who refused hospitality to the Holy Virgin and to St. Joseph during their flight into Egypt. They also declared that, in consequence of this crime, God had doomed their race to perpetual misery and exile. Five years later, we find them in the neighborhood of Paris. The Sunday after the middle of August, says the journal of a bourgeois of Paris, there came to Paris twelve so-called pilgrims, that is to say, a duke, a count, and ten men, all on horseback. They said that they were very good Christians, and that they came from Lower Egypt. And on the 29th of August, the anniversary of the beheading of St. John, the rest of the band made their appearance. These, however, were not allowed to enter Paris, but, in order of the provost, were lodged in the chapel of St. Denis. They did not number more than 120, including women and children. They stated that, when they left their own country, they numbered from a thousand to twelve hundred, but that the rest had died on the road. Whilst they were at the chapel, never was such a concourse of people collected, even at the blessing of the fair of Landy as went from Paris, St. Denis, and elsewhere, to see these strangers. Almost all of them had their ears pierced, and in each one, one or two silver rings, which, in their country, they said, was a mark of nobility. The men were very swarthy, with curly hair. The women were very ugly and extremely dark, with long black hair, like a horse's tail, their only garment being an old rug tied around the shoulder by a strip of cloth or a bit of rope. Amongst them were several fortune-tellers who, by looking into people's hands, told them what had happened or what was going to happen to them, and by this means often did a good deal to sow discord in families. What was worse, either by magic, by satanic agency, or by sleight of hand, they managed to empty people's purses whilst talking to them. So, at least, everyone said. At last, accounts respecting them reached the ears of the Bishop of Paris. He went to them with a Franciscan friar called Le Petit Jacobin, who, by the bishop's order, delivered an earnest address to them and excommunicated all those who had anything to do with them or who had their fortunes told. He further advised the gypsies to go away, and, on the festival of Notre Dame, they departed for Pontoise. Here, again, the gypsies somewhat varied their story. They said that they were originally Christians, but that, in consequence of an invasion by the Saracens, they had been forced to renounce their religion, that, at a subsequent period, powerful monarchs had come to free them from the yoke of the infidels, and had decreed that, as a punishment to them for having renounced the Christian faith, they should not be allowed to return to their country before they had obtained permission from the Pope. They stated that the Holy Father, to whom they had gone to confess their sins, had then ordered them to wander about the world for seven years without sleeping in beds, at the same time giving direction to every bishop and every priest whom they met to offer them ten livres, a direction which the abbots and bishops were in no hurry to obey. These strange pilgrims stated that they had been only five years on the road when they arrived in Paris. Enough has been said to show that, 
Although the object of their long pilgrimage was ostensibly a pious one, the Egyptians or gypsies were not very slow in giving to the people whom they visited a true estimate of their questionable honesty, and we do not think it would be particularly interesting to follow step by step the track of this odious band, which from this period made its appearance sometimes in one country and sometimes in another, not only in the north but in the south, and especially in the center of Europe. Suffice it to say that their quarrels with the authorities, or the habitants of the countries which had the misfortune to be periodically visited by them, have left numerous traces in history. On the 7th of November, 1453, from sixty to eighty gypsies, coming from Cordesol, arrived at the entrance of the town of Shep, near Chalons-sur-Marne, the strangers, many of whom carried javelins, darts, and other implements of war, having asked for hospitality, the mayor of the town informed them that it was not long since some of the same company, or others very like them, had been lodged in the town, and had been guilty of various acts of theft. The gypsies persisted in their demands. The indignation of the people was aroused, and they were soon obliged to resume their journey. During their unwilling retreat, they were pursued by many of the inhabitants of the town, one of whom killed a gypsy named Martin de la Barre. The murderer, however, obtained the king's pardon. In 1532, at Plain Palais, a suburb of Geneva, some rascals from among a band of gypsies, consisting of upwards of three hundred in number, fell upon several of the officers who were stationed to prevent their entering the town. The citizens hurried up to the scene of disturbance. The gypsies retired to the monastery of the Augustan friars, in which they fortified themselves. The bourgeois besieged them, and would have committed summary justice on them, but the authorities interfered, and some twenty of the vagrants were arrested, but they sued for mercy and were discharged. In 1632, the inhabitants of Viarme, in the department of La Tigaron, made an onslaught upon a troop of gypsies who wanted to take up their quarters in the town. The whole of them were killed, with the exception of their chief, who was taken prisoner and brought before the Parliament of Bordeaux, and ordered to be hung. Twenty-one years before this, the mayor and magistrate of Bordeaux gave orders to the soldiers of the watch to arrest a gypsy chief who, having shut himself up in the town of Veyrine at Marignac, ransacked the surrounding country. On the 21st of July, 1622, the same magistrates ordered the gypsies to leave the parish of Aisines within twenty-four hours under penalty of the lash. It was not often that the gypsies used violence or openly resisted authority. They more frequently had recourse to artifice and cunning in order to attain their end. A certain Captain Charles acquired a great reputation amongst them for the clever trickeries which he continually conceived and which his troop undertook to carry out. A chronicler of the time says that by means of certain herbs which he gave to a half-starved horse, he made him into a fat and sleek animal. The horse was then sold at one of the neighboring fairs or markets, but the purchaser detected the fraud within a week, for the horse soon became again thin, and usually sickened and died. Talmont de Réaux relates that, on one occasion, Captain Charles and his attendants took up their quarter in a village, the curé of which, being rich and parsimonious, was much liked by his parishioners. 
the cure never left his house and the gypsies could not therefore get an opportunity to rob him in this difficulty they pretended that one of them had committed a crime and had been condemned to be hung a quarter of a league from the village where they betook themselves with all their goods the man at the foot of the gibbet asked for a confessor and they went to fetch the cure he at first refused to go but his parishioners compelled him during his absence some gypsies entered his house took five hundred aq from his strong-box and quickly rejoined the troop as soon as the rascal saw them returning he said that he appealed to the king of le petit egypte upon which the captain acclaimed ah the traitor i expected he would appeal immediately they packed up secured the prisoner and were far enough away from the scene before the cure re-entered his house talmont relates another good trick near roy in picardy a gypsy who had stolen a sheep offered it to a butcher for one hundred sous but the butcher declined to give him more than five livres for it the butcher then went away whereupon the gypsy pulled the sheep from a sack into which he had put it and substituted for it a child belonging to his tribe he then ran after the butcher and said give me five livres and you shall have the sack into the bargain the butcher paid him the money and went away when he got home he opened the sack and was much astonished when he saw a little boy jump out of it who in an instant caught up the sack and ran off never was a poor man so thoroughly hoaxed as this butcher says talmont de Reo. the gypsies had thousands of other tricks in stock as good as the ones we have just related in proof of which we have but to refer to the testimony of one of their own tribe who under the name of pechon de ruby published towards the close of the sixteenth century la vie généreuse de matois gueux bohémien et cajou when they want to leave a place where they have been stopping they set out in an opposite direction to that in which they are going and after travelling about half a league they take their right course they possess the best and most accurate maps in which are laid down not only all the towns villages and rivers but also the houses of the gentry and others and they fix upon places of rendezvous every ten days at twelve leagues from the point from whence they set out the captain hands over to each of their chiefs three or four families to take charge of and these small bands take different cross-roads towards the place of rendezvous those who are well armed and mounted he sends off with a good almanac on which are marked all the fares and they continually change their dress and their horses when they take up their quarters in any village they steal very little in its immediate vicinity but in the neighboring parishes they rob and plunder in the most daring manner if they find a sum of money they give notice to the captain and make a rapid flight from the place they coin counterfeit money and put it into circulation they play at all sorts of games they buy all sorts of horses whether sound or unsound provided that they can manage to pay for them in their own base coin when they buy food they pay for it in good money the first time as they are held in such distrust but when they are about to leave a neighborhood they again buy something for which they tender false coin receiving the change in good money in harvest time all doors are shut against them nevertheless they contrive by means of picklocks and other instruments to effect an entrance into houses when they steal linen cloaks 
silver, and any other movable article which they can lay their hands on. They give a strict account of everything to their captain who takes his share of all they get, except of what they earn by fortune-telling. They are very clear at making a good bargain. When they know of a rich merchant being in the place, they disguise themselves, enter into communications with him, and swindle him. After which they change their clothes, have their horses shod the reverse way, and the shoes covered with some sort of material lest they should be heard, and gallop away. In the Histoire Générale de la Ronde, we read that the vagabonds called gypsies sometimes played tricks with goblets, sometimes danced on the tightrope, turned double somersaults, and performed other feats, which proves that these adventurers adopted all kinds of methods of gaining a livelihood, highway robbery not excepted. We must not, therefore, be surprised if in almost all countries very severe police measures were taken against these dangerous race though we must admit that these measures sometimes partook of a barbarous character. After having forbidden them, with a threat of six years at the galleys, to sojourn in Spain, Charles V ordered them to leave Flanders under penalty of death. In 1545, a gypsy who had infringed the sentence of banishment was condemned by the court of Utrecht to be flogged till the blood appeared, to have his nostrils slit, his hair removed, his beard shaved off, and to be banished for life. We can form some idea, says the German historian Grelman, of the miserable condition of the gypsies from the following facts. Many of them, especially the women, have been burned by their own request in order to end their miserable state of existence. And we can give the case of a gypsy who, having been arrested, flogged, and conducted to the frontier, with a threat that if he reappeared in the country he would be hanged, resolutely returned after three successive and similar threats at three different places, and implored that the capital sentence might be carried out, in order that he might be released from a life of such misery. These unfortunate people, continues the historian, were not even looked upon as human beings, for, during a hunting party consisting of members of a small German court, the huntsman had no scruple whatsoever in killing a gypsy woman who was suckling her child, just as they would have done any wild beast which came in their way. M. Francisque Michel says, Amongst the questions which arise from a consideration of the existence of this remarkable people is one which, although neglected, is nevertheless of considerable interest, namely, how with a strange language, unlike any used in Europe, the gypsies could make themselves understood by the people amongst whom they made their appearance for the first time. Newly arrived in the West, they could have none of those interpreters who are only to be found amongst a long-established people, and who have political and commercial intercourse with other nations. Where, then, did the gypsies obtain interpreters? The answer seems to us to be clear. Receiving into their ranks all those whom crime, the fear of punishment, an uneasy conscience, or the charm of a roaming life continually threw in their path, they made use of them either to find their way into countries of which they were ignorant, or to commit robberies which would otherwise have been impracticable. 
themselves adept in all sorts of bad practices, they were not slow to form an alliance with profligate characters who sometimes worked in concert with them, and sometimes alone, and who always framed the model for their own organization from that of the gypsies. This alliance, governed by statutes, the honor of compiling which has been given to a certain Ragot, who styled himself captain, was composed of matois, or sharpers, of marcelots, or hawkers, who were very little better than the former, of geo, or dishonest beggars, and of a host of other swindlers constituting the order or hierarchy of the argot, or slang people. Their chief was called the Grand Saucer, a vagabond broken to all the tricks of his trade, says M. Francisque Michel, and who frequently ended his days on the rack on the biggest gibbet. History has furnished us with the story of a miserable cripple who used to sit in a wooden bowl and who, after having seen Grand Saucer for three years, was broken alive on the wheel of Bordeaux for his crimes. He was called Ra de Thune of Tunis and was drawn about by two large dogs. One of his successors, the Grand Saucer named Anacreon, who suffered from the same infirmity, namely that of a cripple, rode about Paris on a donkey, begging. He generally held his court on the Port au Foin, where he sat on his throne, dressed in a mantle made of a thousand pieces. The Grand Saucer had a lieutenant in each province called Cajou, whose business it was to initiate apprentices in the secret of the craft, and who looked after, in different localities, those whom the chief had entrusted to his care. He gave an account of the property he received in thus exercising his stewardship, and of the money as well as of the clothing which he took from the Argotuyer, who refused to recognize his authority. As a remuneration of their duties, the Cajot were exempted from all tributes to their chief. They received their share of the property taken from persons whom they had ordered to be robbed, and they were free to beg in any way they pleased. After the Cajot came the Arquisupo, who, being recruited from the low dregs of the clergy and others who had been in a better position, were, so to speak, the teachers of the law. To them was entrusted the duty of instructing the less experienced rogues, and of determining the language of slang, and, as a reward for their good and loyal services, they had the right of begging without paying any fees to their chiefs. The Grand Saucer levied a tax of twenty-four sous per annum upon the young rogues who went about the streets pretending to shed tears as hopeless orphans in order to excite public sympathy. The Marcandier had to pay an écu. They were tramps clothed in a tolerable good doublet who passed themselves off as merchants ruined by war, by fire, or by having been robbed on the highway. The Malingreau had to pay forty sous, they were covered with sores, most of which were self-inflicted, or they pretended to have swellings of some kind, and stated that they were about to undertake a pilgrimage to St. Mayan in Brittany in order to be cured. The Pietra, or lame rogues, paid half an écu and walked with crutches. The Sabulots, who were commonly called the poor sick of St. John, were in the habit of frequenting friars and markets, or the vicinity of the churches. There, smeared with blood and appearing as if foaming at the mouth by means of a piece of soap they had placed in it, they struggled on the ground as if in a fit, 
and in this way realized a considerable amount of alms. These consequently paid the largest fees to the Soser. Besides these, there were the Cayo, who were either affected with a scurfy disease or pretended to be so, and who were contributors to the civil list of their chief to the amount of seven sous, as also the Coquillard, or pretended pilgrim of St. James or St. Michael, and the Hubin, who, according to the forged certificate which they carried with them, were going to or returning from St. Hubert, after having been bitten by a mad dog. The polisson paid two écus to the saucer, but they earned a considerable amount, especially in winter, for benevolent people touched with their destitution and half-nakedness gave them sometimes a doublet, sometimes a shirt, or some other article of clothing, which, of course, they immediately sold. The Front Mitou, who were never taxed above five sous, were sickly members of the fraternity, or at all events pretended to be such. They tied their arms above the elbow so as to stop the pulse and fell down apparently fainting on the public footpaths. We must also mention the Ruffet and the Millard, who went into the country in groups begging. The Capon were cut purses, who hardly ever left the towns, and who laid hands on everything within their reach. The Courtois de Botage pretended to be workmen, and were to be met with everything with the tools of their craft on their back, though they never used them. The Converti pretended to have been impressed by the exhortations of some excellent preacher, and made a public profession of faith. They afterwards situated themselves at church doors as recently converted Catholics, and in this way received liberal contributions. Lastly, we must mention the Drie, the Narquois, or the people of the Petite Flambe, who for the most part were old pensioners and who begged in the streets from house to house with their swords at their sides. These, who at times lived a racketing and luxurious life, at last rebelled against the Grand Saucer, and would no longer be reckoned among his subjects, a step which gave a considerable shock to the Argotic monarchy. End of section 30